Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his strength and for his wisdom to guide us this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal to us these events of your dealings with your people. They are, as the Apostle Paul says, not only examples for them, but they're examples for us that we would not uh, fall prey to the ways that they behaved in the wilderness. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And, Lord, what we are not, that you would make us. And, Lord, all of that through the, the preaching and teaching of your word, that your word would become alive to us today, that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to work in us and apply uh, the text as it is revealed to our hearts in our unique situation. And, Lord, that you would allow me as your messenger to be faithful to your text. And, Lord, to be uh, faithful to reflect your truth in such a way that your people would be strengthened, uh, equipped, and uh, shaped and molded to be like your son, Jesus Christ. As well as, Lord, those who may be listening who do not know you would see the beauty and the majesty of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things now in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that you are pretty familiar with the events in this text, but I would want to draw your attention to the fact that in John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus says to the crowds following him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Now, this was a radical statement that his audience grumbled about, you can find that in verse 41, because all they could see was the fact that Jesus was the son of Joseph. How could he make such a ridiculous claim? But Jesus' claim is rooted in what we are reading and studying here in Exodus 16. Just a few verses back in John chapter 6, verses 32 and 33, Jesus says to the crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So here, Jesus is rooting his claim in the Israelites' wilderness experience that we find here in chapter 16 of Exodus. So what is the story behind Jesus' claim. What happened in the wilderness with Israel that involves Moses and God the Father who provides bread from heaven? Let's just remind ourselves of the, the setting or the context. Certainly Israel, we know, was in bondage in Egypt, and God has delivered them from that bondage 400 years through the, the ten plagues now at the end, and then ultimately the, the Passover, which was the tenth plague, and the angel of death coming in, and the, the, the Passover lamb slain, the blood was put on the doorpost, all that was part of God's purpose and plan of his delivering Israel. And ultimately, they would leave Egypt, and they would go to the Red Sea. And when they got to the Red Sea, of course, they were panicked. They were worried. But God, again, provided deliverance for his people. He parted the waters, and they obediently went through. And, of course, the, 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 the Egyptian army was behind them. And as they were pursuing them, God closed the waters. And he judged Egypt. And he destroyed Pharaoh and his army. And, of course, there was a great celebration that took place after God's deliverance. Israel enjoyed uh, just the, 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 the wonderful reality of being liberated from their bondage in Egypt. And now they anticipated what God was going to do. And, of course, we read last week that as they went into the wilderness, um, they started to struggle because there was a lack of water. And when they finally got to what appeared to be a, an oasis, a pool in Mara, the water was bitter, and they began to grumble. And yet God in his covenant kindness turns the bitter water into sweet, and they are satisfied. And then more than that, we see them going to a place called Elam, 
and Elam was this wonderful place of abundance for his people. And this is where we come to now when we get to our text. Now, let's just remind ourselves the wilderness is not their final destination. They have been saved from the bondage of Egypt, and ultimately they're heading to the promised land. But now they are in this middle land, so to speak, the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that God will test them and help grow and mature them. And we must always remember that Moses is writing this record of the events of Israel and their journey in particular in the wilderness to the second generation, those who were born in the wilderness who had no personal experience of Egypt or even the Exodus itself. And so as we think through that, he's trying to teach them. He's trying to help them understand who this God is and how mighty he is and how wonderful he is as the covenant-keeping God. And of course, as we get now into chapter 15, 16, 17, we, we find that there are these four events that take place, all really struggles that are happening in the wilderness. As soon as Israel goes out, right, there's a lack of water. Here we're going to find there's a lack of food. And then again, there's a lack of water and the people struggle. And then they finally face this, this tribe that seeks to uh, come and, 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 and destroy them or to harm them. And the question we're asking ourselves is this. Will Israel listen to God's instructions? Will they trust him? Will they obey him? Or will they give in to sin? And friends, that's a question that we should be asking ourselves. Are we willing to listen to God's instructions? Are we the kind of people that obey him and trust him? Or are we more likely to give into sin? And so this morning, as we uh, walk through this text, we want to learn to trust in God's providence while living out the Christian life. So we're going to learn not just to trust God, but now to trust God's providence while living out the Christian life. If you remember last week, we asked the question, what, uh, will Israel trust God to provide? And at Marah, there where the, the, the waters were bitter, God did provide in a miraculous way and in abundance. This week, we ask a similar question, but we, we take it further. And the question is this, will Israel trust God when he provides? Now, there are two separate questions. Will God provide? Will I trust him to provide? And when he does provide, will I then continue to listen to trust him and obey him? Let me give you kind of a, a more contemporary uh, equivalent of what's going on here. Each of you, if you're a citizen of our country, has been promised a stimulus check provided by the government because of the disruption caused by uh, the restrictions placed on us uh, with COVID-19. When you receive that check, assuming you have received that check, you can say the government has provided. I've, I've received that provision. But now that you have that stimulus question or stimulus check, the question is this. Will you use the money provided to help you with your mortgage, your PG&E bill, uh, your car payment, and things like that? The, the intent of the stimulus check to help you meet the needs, to help you pay for those bills that maybe are struggling because of uh, the restrictions that have been put on you. Some of you lost your jobs and need that money for those things. Or will you take that stimulus check and say to yourself, I think I'll buy myself a set of new golf clubs. Now see, to me, that would be a real temptation. Or maybe I'll go to Best Buy, at least outside of Best Buy, and I'll, I'll get this brand new TV. I've always wanted this brand new TV, and I've got this $2,000 stimulus check. Now I can get that TV. Or maybe we'll go on vacation. We'll go where everyone around here is going, to Lake Tahoe, and we'll all squeeze into a beach, social distancing and stuff like that. But we'll use that money to spend it that way. Or maybe I'm going to go out and buy the highest-end Apple MacBook Pro. See, the government has provided. The problem is the intent of that provision is to help you with your basic needs. What we do with that provision, then, is the issue at hand. So this section takes what we've already discovered 
to a deeper level. It is not simply will God provide, but it is will I be faithful to trust and obey God when he is faithful to provide. And it's divided into two sections. The first one's kind of short, although it spills over, verses 1 through 3. We could say that's Israel's besetting sin. And then, of course, the rest of the whole chapter deals with God's gracious provision. So let's jump now and look at what is revealed in this text. Israel's besetting sin. A besetting sin is a sin that is consistently present. It's a sin that is, uh, you're constantly struggling with. And this is what we find now as we jump into this text. They set out from Elam, this place of abundance, both with water and with food. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So it's been about a month or so. And by the way, the wilderness of sin has nothing to do with what we understood sin or understand sin to be. It's simply a kind of derivative of the word Sinai, okay? So it's the region around Sinai. But here they are, and we continue to read here, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hands of the uh, Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So here they are, grumbling once again. And I think if, if you could summarize the attitude or the sin or the outlook of the people of Israel throughout Scripture, you will find a number of words to describe them. One certainly would be rebellion because that was consistent also um, in their lives and would reflect even what's happening here, but certainly grumbling. Now, friends, there's some things now about grumbling that I think is important for us to understand, and, and they're going to flow out of what we're seeing here in this text. First of all, grumbling is extremely contagious. What's clear in this text is that the, the grumbling is not coming from just a minority of people. In fact, all the expressions here are almost emphasized in this text, that the whole congregation of Israel, that's found in verse 2, verse 12, and verse 22, all the people in verse 6. In other words, this was not an isolated incident. The attitudes and behaviors revealed in these events are the attitudes and behaviors of the people as a whole. And that's solidified a little bit later in the text where it says the leaders of the congregation are brought together to hear the word of the Lord to take back to the people. This was a whole assembly, whole congregation issue. And friends, it's worth reminding ourselves that we can so easily get ourselves caught up with what the crowd is thinking, saying, and doing when in fact it's a distortion of the truth. Now you probably know exactly what I'm talking about from your own experience. Have you ever found yourself getting caught up with a post on, uh, or a video on social media, Facebook, whatever it might be, Twitter? You're horrified by what you're reading or seeing. You're getting sucked into the rhetoric and the complaints and the injustice and the grumbling only to find out that what you are watching or reading was actually, we would call it, fake news and a complete distortion of the facts. You can just imagine here the leaders of Israel saying something like this to Moses. Hey, this is what the people want. The people have voted for this. It is the will of the people. But hear this, friends. Democracy is not the norm in the economy of Israel. It's not the norm in the economy of the church. God's will is not determined by majority votes. His will and his ways are right no matter what the masses think. But how easily we can get caught up with grumbling and complaining that is around us. Friends, grumbling is contagious. Secondly, grumbling distorts the past, doesn't it? 
When we grumble, we look to the past with nostalgia as if this was the greatest time in the whole world, forgetting things that may have been present that weren't so great. Here in our text, the Israelites are looking back at their time in Egypt, and they're saying to themselves, do you remember the good old days? Days when we sat around the campfire with our families, singing songs with meat pots galore, enjoying succulent meat and having sourdough bread to the full. Mm, those days were great. I wish we were back in Egypt. But friends, that's not reality. That's not what they were experiencing. Now we go back and we find out they cried out to God for rescue because they were being oppressed. They were slaves under the heavy hand of the taskmasters. But this is what happens when we grumble, friends. Our memory of the past is distorted by our disillusion with the present. And it's a selective, nostalgic memory, isn't it? Now, we're seeing that played out in the political arena in our country. Democrats want to go back to the good old days of the 1960s where social restraints were thrust aside and opened the door for sexual and societal freedoms, where programs were set up to take care of the least fortunate in our society. Then you have the Republicans, on the other hand, who want to go back to the 80s where Reaganomics, success, prosperity, and the American dream were all within everyone's grasp. But friends, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, when you look at the present struggles and look back in history, you tend to see the past through distorted glasses and only remember the bits that you want to remember. So you have one party that looks back, everything's evil. You have another party looking back saying, everything's good. So Republicans want to make America great again. The Democrats want to make social progress again. And each of them is chasing a utopia that mankind cannot reach because we are a sinful people living among sinful people. Friends, sin is the issue. Now, friends, that can be true in your life, can't it? Oh, how I wish I were young again, happy and carefree. Well, there are a lot of young people who are carefree who are now suffering for it and whose happiness was a thin disguise for the agony they were experiencing, trying to fit in and belong. Friends, hear this. Grumbling has a way of distorting the, real, the realities of the past. So grumbling is contagious. Grumbling distorts the past. Third, grumbling exaggerates the present. Not only does God... Uh, grumbling distort the past, but here as it, it exaggerates the present, the whole congregation said to Moses, just get this, you have brought us into the wilderness to what? To kill us. Yes, that was his intent all along. That was what God sought to do when he said, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go so that they can go into the wilderness and serve me or worship me. God's purpose, God's intent was to bring them out and to kill them. Right? Now you may remember that they had said something similar when Moses approached Pharaoh the first time. That was the whole bricks and straw thing that went down. They turned to Moses saying, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then in chapter 17, verse 3, which we'll get to next week, they're at it again, grumbling against Moses, saying, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now let's put some things in perspective here. Here in chapter 16, Israel is not on the brink of starvation. How do we know that? Because they still have their flocks with them. And we understand part of the reason they have their flocks with them is so that their animals can produce milk, and as a result, they can drink the milk. Not only that, with the milk, they can make cheese. So milk and cheese, right? But if they want to, if they needed to, they could kill and eat their own animals. 
Now, the point I'm trying to help us see here is this. What we're looking at here is not so much needs as they are wants and fears, but they rise then to the level where they will say things like, you have brought us here to kill us. They exaggerate their present circumstances. Do you find yourself grumbling about the present in such a way as to exaggerate the reality of what you're actually going through? If you're stuck in traffic, do you find yourself saying, this is the worst day of my life? There's probably been worse days. In anticipation of changing your name on your driver's license, you say, I'm going to die if I have to go to the DMV. My friends, it's not like you have to walk miles to a food distribution station to stand in line for hours hoping to get a loaf of bread and a handful of rice. Some people in the world would love to be stuck in traffic or have the privilege to have a driver's license so they can drive a car. A lot of this is perspective, friends, but grumbling exaggerates the present. Not only that, grumbling bridles the future, hinders the future with unbelief. We will see this played out in the verses to come. God promises them provision for food every day and even for the Sabbath day, but they don't believe him, and so they don't obey him. Each time we grumble or complain, we chip away at our belief in the character of God and his promises for us. Let me say that again. Each time we grumble or complain, we chip away at our belief in the character of God and his promises for us. And finally, grumbling ultimately dishonors God. You hear this in Moses and Aaron's response to the congregation of Israel. For what are we that you grumble against us? Who are we that your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord? So grumbling is ultimately directed against the character and the promises of God. Although the people chose to direct their grumbling against Moses and Aaron, they and the text want to make it clear that the grumbling of the whole congregation is ultimately against God. And Moses and Aaron respond by basically saying, look, if you have a problem with what is going on, you don't have a problem with us, you have a problem with God. And friends, that's what we need to understand. Our grumbling ultimately dishonors God. So if you want to shoot the messenger, that's up to you. But you must realize that the messenger only communicates the message. And it is God who's given the message. And so grumbling is an extremely destructive, sinful response to trials, friends. And it is ultimately anger directed to God for the inconvenience, the panic, the fear that you're experiencing. It is evidence that you don't believe that God is big enough to help or good enough to even care. So this is what happens. Israel's besetting sin. They're panicked over the food situation and questioning whether God will provide. And so they start to grumble again. Now, what we find is that God responds graciously. His gracious provision now. He's going to provide bread from heaven. In spite of their grumbling, God treats them with grace and provides miraculously for them. Now let's approach this section with, by asking two questions. Two questions that we've already brought up. Will Israel trust God to provide? And then will Israel trust God when he provides? These are two very important questions. The first question, will Israel trust God to provide? And as we seek to answer that question, the text confronts us with two realities that I think help us see what God is doing. First of all, I want you to notice that we find in the text, just the reminder, that God is always listening. Three times in the text, the text tells us that God has heard your grumbling, verse 7, verse 9, and verse 12. 
You are grumbling against Moses, which ultimately is against the Lord, and the Lord has heard your grumbling. Now, what do you expect this divine, sovereign God, the most powerful being in the world, to do when his created servants grumble and complain? Especially when he has already provided them in abundance. How should he respond? How would he respond? How would most people think that a God like this would respond? Would he respond by saying, why are you grumbling? Haven't I done enough for you to lead you out of slavery and bring you out of Egypt? How ungrateful can you be? But that is not what the Lord does, is it? No, we're told he has heard your grumbling. Just like we've read before, I have heard your cries for rescue. Now hear this. Even when we are angry, fearful, selfish, and allowing our desires and passions to rule us, God is still a gracious and kind God to us. When we grumble, God responds with grace. Let that sink in. See, what God is doing here is not just to somehow slap Israel silly. What God is doing is seeking to reveal himself and to shape these people. So God is always listening. And friends, that's always helpful for us, isn't it? We struggle, we complain, we groan, we get angry. Our hearts cry out. We get frustrated. We say things. And yes, those things may be sinful, but God is not up in heaven playing whack-a-mole, just knocking down the sin. He actually is understanding the struggle that we're going through, and he wants them to meet our need graciously. Isn't that a wonderful truth? In spite of our sinfulness, because God is our covenant-keeping God, he still pursues us to shape us and to mold us. So God is always listening. Secondly, God is always already orchestrating. And we find that now in verse 4. He's describing how he's going to provide for his children in the wilderness. He says, God tells us that he is about to rain bread down from heaven. And that bread, literally food or provision, will take the form of initially quail and manna. And Asaph, the psalmist, reflects on Israel's time in the wilderness and says this. This is Psalm 78, 24 and 25. He says this, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. This is how God responds. And he's already orchestrating his provision for his people. Stephen, in his sermon recorded for us in Acts chapter 7, looks back on this time and he says, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. We saw earlier as we were going through the book of Exodus that, that the signs and the wonders describe the, the plagues that God had put on Egypt. But the signs and the wonders are also present here in the wilderness. And they are supernatural evidences of who God is as he cares for his people. So in what way does God promise to provide? We're told here, quail in the evening. Quail are a small partridge-like bird that migrate north from Africa on their way to southern Europe. And they do that in the late spring, about the time that, that Israel would have been here, and they travel through the Sinai region. So this was a one-time provision in the evening. And then, of course, we have manna in the morning. This was the ongoing provision of God that would last for 40 years. Now, manna is a substance we know little about except as it's described here in Scripture. Even Moses took time to describe it in our text and to explain it. Verse 14, it's a flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. Verse 31, it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Now, we, we, we are call, it's called here manna in the text, later in the text, but just because it comes from this Hebrew word, man, huh, 
which means what is it? So literally it means what is it? In our contemporary context, uh, we might say it's a, it's a whatchamacallit, that might be for your older generation, or a thingamajig, or what's that stuff, right? I mean, we, it's, it doesn't have actually a word, and that word manna has now become the word to describe what it is. And we probably say after taking a bite, hmm, tastes a little bit like honey chicken or something like that, right? It's something unique. It's something God sent. It's not something that was already out there in nature. And the answer to the question, what is it, is given to us in verse 15. It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And if you look back at verse 8, God says, in the morning, the Lord will give you bread to the full. Not just a little bit, but to the full. He'll give you what you need to satisfy your hunger. And they were to collect one omer per person and gather it together based on how many were in their tents. And that would be a little more than two liters. So, so think of a, a two liter of Coke filled up, right? That, that would be what the, each person's daily food provision of this manna would be. And then on the sixth day, they got twice that much so that they could rest on the seventh day. Now, friends, the point here is this, that God is already orchestrating how he is going to provide for his children. Now, some quick observations about God's provision of quail and manna, and primarily the manna, because that would last. First of all, it is a supernatural provision. That is God's supernatural and gracious provision for his people. This was not some natural phenomenon that can be explained away by some scientific theory. This was God's miraculous provision. Certainly, God temporarily provided quail in the evening. He harnessed the natural in supernatural ways to provide for that meat in the wilderness. And he provided the ongoing manna in the morning, day after day, for 40 years. So that's not a natural phenomenon. That is God working supernaturally to provide for his people. Secondly, it is a sufficient provision. They will have everything they need for every day, even for the seventh day. No one will grow hungry. All will have sufficient food. See, God's provision is always sufficient. The problem, as we'll find out, is that when God provides, we can often take his provision for granted and then begin to complain about his provision. Oh, no, not manna again. There's probably some meal that mom cooks where the family's like, okay, we have this a lot. We're tired of this right now. Hey, what's for dinner, mom? Well, in this context, oh, I thought I would do manna patties again. I know that you like them so much. Manna, 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 manna. However you're going to be creative in making it, it's still the same stuff, right? Well, that might be true, but it's still the provision that God gives for his people. Third, it is also a glorious provision. It is designed for Israel to see God's glory. Every time the manna came down from heaven and was gathered up, Israel would be reminded of God's supernatural and sufficient provision for them while wandering in the barren wilderness. It was designed to reveal God's glory, to bear witness to God's faithfulness and kindness toward those who were his covenant people, even though they grumbled. So God is listening, and he is already at work to provide for his children. And that should encourage us all because God promises to provide for us. He promises to provide our daily bread, our basic needs. So will Israel trust God to provide? Well, we move on to the next question. Will Israel trust God when he provides? And this really is the, the bulk of what we have next in this text. This is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? This is where God's children move from simply being recipients of God's grace to being responsible with God's grace. 
me say that again. This is where God's children move from simply being recipients of God's grace to being responsible with God's grace. And so we find, first of all here, that this, this provision is a provision that tests. As I mentioned earlier, God is always ready to provide for his children. But the question of this text is this, how will God, God's children respond when God provides? And this is the test. Now, the theme of testing, we've, we saw last week as it began there at the bitter waters of Mara, where they're all panicked and all worried because they get to the water and it's bitter and we're thirsty and what's going to happen? And God says, I'm going to test you. And of course, he provides through Moses a miraculous change of the water so it turns from bitter to sweet and the people are satisfied. And then to add to that, he takes them to Elam, where they're just full of abundance of resources. In the next two encounters, there'll be trials that they face, which are also going to be tests. And as we saw last week, God's tests are trials where we can prove our faithfulness or reveal areas of our sinfulness. Now, friends, it's important for us to understand that God is not seeking to punish Israel right now, but he's seeking to test them. And friends, it's worth us remembering that God brought these people out of slavery in Egypt. Let me explain what I'm saying. They had a way of life. They had a worldview. They had habits of behavior. They had values and practices that needed to be identified, exposed, and ultimately rooted out, and then to be replaced with God's ways. See, isn't that just a picture of, of, of the Christian life? God takes us from our bondage to our sin, the, the worldview that we have, the kind of habits that we have, and he radically, miraculously converts us, regenerates us to new life. But we drag into our own Christian walk old thinking, old habits, old behaviors, old values, old ways of doing things. We're saved, we're his children, but we have different ways of thinking, and God is taking us through times in the wilderness, times in our journey, times in our Christian walk, where he's chipping away at this old man, and he's seeking then to replace it with this new man of walking in fellowship with God. The Apostle Paul talks about being Christians, being God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Later, he, in writing to Titus, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's great. That's conversion. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, we are saved, but once we're saved, there's still work to do. Why? Because of all these old man habits, these old man ways of thinking, these old man behaviors that we have that he wants us to put off and to rethink about, and then to put on the righteousness of Christ. Friends, it is a provision that tests. So what is the purpose of this test? We find that in verse 4, and then ultimately also in verses 5 through 7. First of all, the purpose of this test is designed um, to reveal Israel's faithfulness. Yeah, look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. Now, the thing that might kind of shock you at that point in time is like, well, the law has not been revealed yet. That's the, the latter part of uh, the book of Exodus, correct? And so the law, the official law, has not been established yet, but the law is the word of God that has been communicated to them, and so that is the standard. In other words, God is saying, if this is what I say, will you obey? Will you trust it? Will you follow through? So it's designed to reveal whether Israel will be faithful or not. Secondly, it's designed to reveal God's kindness. Just notice verses 5 through Six, sorry, five through seven. On the sixth day, when he prepared what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall 
know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. So just there's, there's three kind of ideas in this text that help us understand that God is revealing something to Israel about himself. First of all, that they would know that it was he who brought them out of the land of Egypt. We find that also referenced in verse 12, where it says, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. How many times has God had to reveal himself so that they would know that he is the Lord their God? Not only that, we find here that they would see, that they would see the glory of the Lord. Verse 7 and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Again, in verse 10, we find this. As soon as Aaron spoke, the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. God is wanting to reveal himself. He continues to want to reveal himself. And then finally there, to assure them of the fact that he has heard their grumbling. And we just remind ourselves that three times that statement has been made. See, God is is desiring this test so that Israel can be seen as to whether they're faithful to his word or not, and that God would be clearly seen and understood for who he is. Now, is that what we're looking for when God tests us? I think more often than not, what we're looking for when God tests us is relief and just a way out. But I think it's helpful for us to ask the question, what is God seeking to teach me in the midst of this trial? I know in the context of counseling, I'll, I'll have people draw a circle, and it's, it's kind of the circle where we're saying, I want you to put some theological truths. What is God revealing to you about him as you're going through this trial? And it's important to reflect on that because God is at work doing that. See, he, he wants us to see him in a greater way. He wants us to see that we are so easily moved to rest in our own uh, fleshly nature to respond to problems rather than to lean on him. God here in his covenant kindness continues to make provision for his rebellious children. Would you have that kind of patience God has for these people? Would you continue to be gracious when they should know better but choose to disobey and ignore your words? Is that how you function? This is the purpose of the test. But let's now consider the nature of the test. Here's what God is saying. And I'm summarizing from a number of the things that are in the text. He's saying, although I will gladly provide for you, you bear responsibility for what you do with my words of instruction and with the provision I am graciously giving to you. You could summarize it this way. You must listen to my instructions. You must trust my instructions. You must obey my instructions. And those are important and they're distinct. So what were the instructions? God would provide for you every day with bread from heaven. And on the sixth day, there will be twice as much to gather. And you are to gather twice as much. Let's read there now in verse 15 through 16. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. That's not saying that they were being... They were gathering, you know, in exorbitant ways. They're just gathering, basically, maybe it was a little bit over, it was a little bit less, right? And uh, uh, you shall take, uh, sorry, they gathered uh, some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had, not, had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So it just, it all kind of balanced out. Everyone had what they needed in order to, provide for their food allotted for that day. Now, there's some aspects of God's instructions here that we might be tempted to struggle with. And just, just hear me out here, because I think it's important for us to, to, to think this through. The instructions in particular that, from our perspective, seem to be matters of prudence, diligence, wisdom, 
and good stewardship. Doesn't it make sense that to gather more than you need so that you can have extra just in case um, is a pretty wise thing to do. So why is God not happy with the people for being industrious? This is how we think, isn't it? Um, you are being given $600 a week to go to work, and you don't go to work and tell your boss, you know, I only spent $400 last week, so I don't see why I need the whole $600 that I am due. Just give me the $400. We can call it even. No. Our wisdom would say, um, and good stewardship would say, if you save $200 because you only spent $400, you can save it for a rainy day. That is being smart. That's being wise. That's being prepared. It's even fighting against self-indulgence. Those are all good things. But we must be careful that we don't look at this text through an economic lens seeking to find that golden nugget of economic truth. Now, note this. The instructions given by the Lord were given to a specific group of people in a specific context. Not necessarily given to you, but there are some general principles here that come through that I think are important for us to see. And this is the nature then of the test, all right? First one is this, only take what you need for each day. Now, that's kind of hard for us to think through, right? I mean, I cooked, I cooked a roast last night, and there was far more meat and potatoes and carrots than I could eat. And I'm going to have leftovers either for dinner or for tomorrow. That seems smart. That seems wise. But based on God's paradigm here, based on what God is seeking to do with Israel, he's trying to teach them they are only to take what they need for each day. They are to trust him. No more, no less. And if you do, it will either be worm-infested or it will melt away. Then on the sixth day, be sure to take twice what you need. You are not to go out on the seventh day to get manna. It won't be there. So again, trust and obey. You could add those in, in both of those statements. What's the point? God is saying, I'm going to make supernatural and sufficient provision for you every day so, so that you will know that I am the Lord, so that you will see my glory. But I have qualifications. I have guidelines. I have instructions or rules that I want you to follow and adhere to so that my provision will benefit you. Only gather what you need for each day, and on the sixth day, gather twice as much to cover the seventh day. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to provide for you, but you will need to be responsible to listen, to trust, and to obey my word. So how did the Israelites respond? What do we find them doing? Look at verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till morning. In other words, what you've gathered, right? Leave it till morning, think I'm going to eat it then. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Now, you have to empathize with Moses here, don't you? Can you imagine trying to lead this group of people? You're saying, my family is this group of people. Well. This is Israel. I don't think it quite compares, right? Can you imagine the conversation that he's having with the people? Did you understand the instructions? Yes, we understood the instructions. Okay, good. Did you hear what I said? Don't leave any of it over till the morning. Yes, we heard what you said, Moses. So why did you leave some of it over till morning? I mean, banging head against the proverbial wall, right? Then did you believe the instructions? Did you believe the word of the Lord when he said it will turn to worms or that it would stink or that it would melt away? And the answer is no. So it's one thing to hear and understand, but it's another thing to believe. Belief is evidenced by our actions and our attitudes. Israel grumbled and Israel disobeyed. Yet this was a test. And God was at work moving them from the attitudes and habits and worldviews of their enslavement to the attitudes, habits, and worldview of walking with the Lord. 
And this is a wonderful picture of our sanctification, isn't it? Do you see what God is doing with Israel here? Do you understand why he is being so gracious? Do you comprehend how God is nurturing his people towards something new and different, something that is for their good, but they may not see it yet? So it is a provision that tests us. There's two more, and we are moving out of time here, so just bear with me as we work through them because they're important for us to see. We have not only a provision that tests, but we also have a provision that rests. You see, we have here this Sabbath day, and we're told here that it's a day of solemn rest. So following the Sabbath day, I think for many Christians, when they hear that kind of... Uh, they have feelings that the day is taxing and heavy and weighty with regulations and rules and all that kind of stuff. But God, through the Sabbath, blesses his people by giving them the freedom to rest. He's saying it's good for you to rest after working six days. He's saying you don't have to push yourself. You are free to take a day and rest. It's good news. Imagine if your job required you to work seven days a week without any breaks. I think there would be protests going on. But remember, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. Slaves don't typically get the weekend off to go to Lake Tahoe. They don't take personal time off. And when seen in light of what the Hebrew people had been experiencing in Egypt, having a day of rest was a welcome thing. In more recent years, I have been struggling with my weight gain, something about getting older. Um, maybe it's about steak, potatoes, and ice cream. That's possible too, but when you read the blogs or um, watch videos on YouTube, they, many people are saying that the key to, to being healthy and losing weight isn't merely exercise. It isn't even merely diet. They're now saying that what we as people need is rest, that we need to sleep well. Now, somehow that doesn't compute with the high-paced corporate America model. Maybe an afternoon siesta is what we actually need to embrace, not being lazy, but being healthy. So this afternoon when I take my sunny nap, I'll say to my wife, honey, I'm trying to lose some weight, okay? Now, the point, though, is this, that God has gifted us with rest. That's the point he's giving here to these people. So the Sabbath day is a, a, solemn, a day of solemn rest, but it's also a day to the Lord. The purpose of the Sabbath wasn't to simply not work and fill it up with other stuff, but to make sure that a right amount of time and focus is given and directed to the Lord. In other words, it isn't just a day of rest for rest's sake. It's also a day of rest for the Lord's purposes in your life. And we'll likely say more about it when we get to chapter 20 of Exodus, but we need to remember here is that the Lord hasn't established the guidelines for Sabbath rest quite yet. The principle began at creation, certainly. It's reinforced here. Um, but one day is set aside. And it's a day that is set aside that you prepare for, right? Gathering twice on the sixth day. And it's a day that you prioritize, so you prioritize it to the Lord, that you give ample time on the Sabbath to direct your thoughts and activities in a Godward direction. Now, of course, when we get to the New Testament and the, to the administration of God's people through the church, we see that the Sabbath became the Christian Lord's Day. But we should not discount the Sabbath entirely and write it off as an Old Testament practice, the principles behind it remain the same. It's a time of solemn rest, and it's a time to focus on the Lord. And unfortunately, the church in America has allowed the culture to dictate how we approach the Lord's Day. We think of nothing, uh, think nothing of allowing the activities of our culture to crowd out those priorities. Now, to be honest, I want you to be honest. When was the last time you stepped back and looked at how you approached the Lord's Day? I appreciate uh, Kevin DeYoung's threefold questions here about the Lord's Day. I'm going to give them to you as just a means for you to consider 
this wonderful, beautiful gift of rest. Here they are. Number one, am I using Saturday to prepare for Sunday? The Israelites gathered two omers on day six so that they would be ready to rest on day seven. Hear this. Sunday will never be a day of rest if we don't think about it the day before. Planning for it. Getting ready for it. Secondly, am I using Sunday to get ahead or to get a break? Friends, it's a day for you to catch up on things or is it a day for you to breathe? Is there anything about Monday that feels like you rested on Sunday? Now, I don't want to be, I want to be careful here not to be legalistic. I want to put extra weight and burden and, and somehow bind your conscience about things that aren't necessarily what Scripture's talking about. There are certainly things that you can't avoid. Right? Your children still need your attention. You don't just say, well, today's you know, the Lord's Day. Psh, do what you want. I'm going to rest. Right? You still have to, to work in being a parent. Maybe you have a paper that's due on Monday that needs to be written. Or you have to, you've run out of milk, so you, you've got to go to the grocery store, things like that. We understand that life happens, but maybe some of those things could be avoided if we planned with the Lord's day in mind. And here's the final one. Can others see that the Lord's day is a day with unique priorities and special blessing for you and your family? And I realize we're in pandemic right now, and many of you are at home, but do your neighbors even know that you go to church? Do they, do they have an awareness that there's something unique about Sunday as a day that is set aside for the priority of gathering with God's people? Right? Do you find yourself refraining from activities so that you can truly rest? Do you enjoy exercising the ministry of hospitality because it is a Godward pursuit? Or have you developed the habit of filling your Sunday full of activities? You're, you can't wait to get out after church so you can get to the next thing. Friends, we have to ask ourselves some questions. Am I approaching the Lord's day in the right way? Or have I allowed the culture or my sinful desires to draw me away from the rest that God has gifted me? And friends, when we see this in light of the context of slavery, a Sabbath for the purpose of rest of the Lord was a gift to the people of Israel. Now it's back to our point here. It's a provision that tests. It's a provision that rests. It's also a provision that testifies. We find here in this, these last few verses, Moses giving instructions about taking an omer of this manna and putting it in a jar. And that jar then is going to be placed before the Lord, before the testimony, which is likely a reference to the Ten Commandments. And then we're told why. So that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So it was to be a legacy, a reminder, a testimony for the generations to come about God's faithfulness to his children. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4. And while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. What three things were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant? What three things were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant? I know some of you kids probably memorized this right now, and you're telling your parents the answers. But we'll find it here in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered it on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn. So this is a description of the Ark of the Covenant. In which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded. We find that in the book of Numbers, chapter 17. And the tablets of the covenant. Now, friends, there's a reason why these elements are there, and manna being one of them. God wanted to preserve this reality of the truth of his faithful provision for his people in this sacred place so that they would remember what kind of God he is. See, it was evidence of God's supernatural and sufficient provision given to the people of God, even while they grumbled. 
This is the God who provided bread for his people while they struggled in the wilderness. So when we turn back to John chapter 6, and we read what Jesus says after the Jews wanted a sign after he fed the 5,000, he said, this is John chapter 6 now, he says, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Just, uh, Jesus then said uh, to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. You get the connection here. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. He says that in chapter 6 and verse 31. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he ties these two events together here. So you hear what he's saying. I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the bread of angels. I am the feast that you partake of. When you do, you ought never go hungry and will never be thirsty again. Let's just kind of summarize this. Jesus promises that he is the provision that will sustain you every day, the rest of your life, and for all eternity. So when you get up tomorrow morning, you will have new mercies from Jesus. He will continue to sustain and provide for you. Every day you wander in the wilderness of your Christian walk, Jesus will be the manna, the food, the nourishment, the sustenance that you need. So feed on him. Rest in him. Learn from him. And then again in John chapter 6 and verse 27, Jesus says this, Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, just quickly in conclusion here, the result of all this should have an impact on us. It should, it should allow us to have kind of some fresh realities in our lives. First of all, a fresh perspective. Just step back. God says, I'll provide. It gives you a whole new perspective on, on how you are to approach life and how you are to see him at work in your life. It's going to give you a fresh patience because you may think, you may be tempted to grumble, but you have to remind yourself, wait a minute, God is a, a God who provides. Jesus is my satisfaction. He is my food. He will take care of me. And so rather than begin to complain you can stop and you can be patient in the moment of your discouragement or your trial, and you can just lean on him as that bread of life. It also brings a freshness to your prayer life, right? What does the Lord's Prayer say? Give us this day our daily bread. Daily. See, sometimes we're so mapped out that we are wanting things that are way down the road rather than focusing on what God gives us every day. And finally, the result of this is a fresh passion to live for God and his glory. Having seen how he works with his people and we transfer that then to us as his children in the church, as one of the followers of Christ, this is the promise that I have that he is my provider. And he is the one uh, to which I run to when I need satisfaction, when I need nourishment, when I need help. So it gives me a fresh passion to live my life for his glory. I am the bread from heaven. And I am going to give you life forever. Believe on me. Lord, help us today as we have moved our way from Christ to the Old Testament back to Christ this morning, just thinking through the events that took place in the wilderness, Lord, on a practical level, we see that God allows us to go through trials that reveal the sinfulness of our heart and, and the desires that we may have. And you 
are fully aware of what those things are. You understand how our hearts work. You understand the ways that we struggle. And Lord, you want to mold us and to shape us to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for the trials. Thank you for the, the struggles. Thank you for the tests that you bring because you are seeking to reveal yourself as well as to sharpen us. We praise you for that. But Lord, in that, would you give us fresh perspective? Lord, to, to know what it is that you're doing and to be reminded, Lord, that you are the bread of life and that we can find our help and our hope and our satisfaction in you. And Lord, that is not a one-time thing. That is a guarantee, daily reality, until we stand in your presence and glory. Thank you, Lord, for who you are, for what you've done. And Lord, I ask especially for your people that are part of Gateway Bible Church. Lord, as we, as we are going through various trials right now, our hearts are, are anxious in many ways. And some of that's natural, but some of that can turn sinful. Help us then to, Lord, rely on you, to trust in you, to look to you. And Lord, to come to you in prayer, uh, believing, not just saying we've heard and we, we understand, but, but believing, trusting in you, as well as obeying what your word says. Lord, thank you for how your word guides us. Give us strength now. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.